All right, here we go. Hey, the questions we've got today are going to grab you no matter where you are. Got one listener who says, Dan, it turns out I'm insane by definition. Well, you know the story there. He took a job and realizes he's just as miserable now as he was before. Maybe you're stuck there. Got some others that are going to light your fire. Stay with us. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, as you know, things are pretty wild in the workplace right now. You can't drive a block without seeing six companies that have signs out we're hiring. What's up with that? How can we have 10.3 million jobs open and yet have people who are unemployed? Well, we're going to jump into that. We're going to be doing a webinar coming up September 9th. That's a Thursday. As usual, we're going to be jumping on with you at 1 o'clock or 7 o'clock. You can choose. We're going to title it The Great Resignation because this seems so ironic that People are you know, looking for work, and yet we have so many people who are quitting their jobs. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that back in April of this year, 649,000 Americans quit their jobs. They had jobs, but they quit voluntarily. Well, at this point, we're told, I mean, Monster.com reported recently that 95% of Americans who have jobs are actively looking to leave their jobs. I mean, that's not a typo. It was 95%. This pandemic has made a whole lot of us wake up to the realities of our jobs, and we're wanting more. People are acknowledging it's not just about getting a paycheck. They want more. What is the meaning and purpose behind our work? Can we find something that we want to get better in? Do we have mastery, autonomy, purpose, Time to enjoy family, friends, and life, fulfillment in our work, more opportunity to put our skills and abilities to use. I mean, those are the kind of things we're all confronted with. What a great time. I mean, those are not negative things to be thinking about. Those are great things to be considering. We should be considering those things. So we're going to be unpacking things like how do you get a handle on what you really want next? What are the opportunities? What are companies offering? What can you do to be in the driver's seat? And what is it that you can do if you decide to do something on your own? And looking at just some of the stats, I mean, I get the updates from the Census Bureau on the work situation stats. It's always enlightening. But in July, the month we just finished, non-farm payroll employment. Now, they, they still categorize it, even though there's only 2% of Americans working in agriculture, they still categorize it as farm and non-farm employment for some reason. Anyway, non-farm employment rose by 943,000 in July alone. Almost a million people, new people were working. That made the unemployment drop to 5.4%. And at 5%, you know, we consider that full employment. There's always going to be that many people who are making transitions. 
But then in spite of this, we have what they call discouraged workers. These are, they say this is a subset of the marginally attached who believe that no jobs were available for them. So people who are looking for positions are not employed, but have given up looking because they don't think there's anything available for them. That number in July was 507,000 people. How does all this make sense? How can we fit all this together where we have people who are so discouraged because they don't think there's anything available for them, and yet you can't throw a stone without hitting a company that says we're hiring? Well, not easy solutions, but we're going to be unpacking a lot of that. Hey, I hope you grab a seat. If you go to 48days.com slash webinar, you'll see there registration. Just grab a seat for that. There's no cost for that. I'm looking forward to being able to just walk through and unpack some of this craziness that we're in right now to help you figure out what is the best path for you? How can you be in the position you want to be as we're now approaching yet another new year? How can you hit January 1st, 2022 and know that you're where you want to be? You're in the driver's seat. You are getting that autonomy, mastery, purpose. Your passion is focused. You got the income you want. Hey, those things are possible. So join us there again, 48days.com slash webinar coming up on September 9th. Now, here's some of the questions I want to unpack today. We've got a lot of them. I'm going to go through just as many as I can. Um, We're not going to stick around for three hours, but I'm going to just blast through some here because we always have interesting questions. A lot of them relate to just what I was talking about. People frustrated with where they are in the workplace, knowing there's something more, not really sure how to navigate that. So let's jump into some of these. Dan, I love cooking for people. How can I open a restaurant? This is an interesting one. I've been burdened with the thought that I'm not very good at anything. Is my personality something to be overcome or could it be used to my advantage? Dan, if I start a new business, I feel extreme pressure because I cannot afford to fail at all. All right, well, we'll have a good time unpacking that one. And then as I alluded, uh, somebody said, it turns out I'm insane by definition since I'm just as miserable in my new job as I was before. And well, I hope we get to this one. going to wrap it up with, can my playlist tell me what my passions are? That's pretty interesting. Can your podcast playlist tell you what your passions are? All right, our quotation today. You know, I wanted something that that talked about this idea of, of failing, and I remembered in my mind, you know, there's something about if failure is not a possibility, you know, then you aren't going to really enjoy winning. I mean, that's kind of the definition of winning is that there was a possibility of failing. So I Googled that, and the first thing that came up was a quote from Dan Meller. <laughs> It's funny how those things that seem to be familiar, when I look them up, sometimes it's, okay, I already said something about that. So the quotation is from Dan Miller, yours truly today, that says, if failure is not a possibility, then winning is not so sweet. All right, we're going to circle back around to that for sure. Well, I got good news woven in all through the questions today. So I'm just going to kind of intersperse those as we go. I love getting these success stories from you, the listeners. Those are the most meaningful. We can always pull them out of the news somewhere about people we don't know. And those are cool too. But I love these that come from you, the listeners. You know, Keep sending those in to me. Just shoot them in to askdan at 48days.com. This comes from Lenny. 
Says, I was laid off from my technology job of five years last February. I immediately purchased 48 Days to the Work You Love, began sending out letters, my resume, and making calls. I called the president of a firm that manages quasi-municipal special districts. Right, I'm not even sure what that is. This is something that I would love doing as I serve on the board of this type of district and saw the need for it. She was excited by my call, saying that she had been wanting to open an office in my area for the past few years, but hadn't found the right person. After some discussion, the firm's president decided the timing wasn't right. I was able to go ahead and get another technology job. Seven months later, the firm's president called me to offer me that position. The next day, I was laid off from my latest technology job. Talk about timing. I'm loving it. Well, thanks for sharing that story. Sometimes when we have the desire, you know, it's that think and grow rich principle. You get clear in the desire. It's amazing how the doors start opening. Christine says, hi, Dan. Thanks for your suggestion response to my question on a recent 48 Days podcast. I took the suggestion and have now moved out of the corporate world that paid only $15 an hour to an independent bookkeeper position that pays per job, but averages $25 an hour. I'm also giving music lessons to a few students and now have 20 hours a week to apply to our recording and media business. I feel more motivated than I ever have, and I'm very excited about the future and new opportunities. Thank you for your continued wisdom and the incredible networking opportunities. Keep up the good work. May all of your endeavors be blessed abundantly. Well, thank you, Christine. I appreciate that. And thanks for sharing your your update with how you've gotten more time freedom, unlimited income, increased your income dramatically. Congratulations to you for taking a massive, massive effort, taking action to make that happen. Sandra says, Dan, I want to thank you for being my teacher and sharing your wisdom with me each week for the last few years. When I started my business 10 years ago, I never would have believed it would be where it is today. I love what I do, and the money has somehow found us, as you suggest. But since I'm a wife, the freedoms it has afforded us still seem out of reach as my wonderful husband still chooses to work full time. I would love for him to join me and break out of his stressful continuing nine to five rut, but he feels he should always have a real job as a husband and dad, and he's miserable. I wish for him more freedom and flexibility together for us as a couple and a family, as well as less stress on him. Am I being selfish? What are your thoughts on this dynamic? Well, you you uh, you kind of lay out some things there, Sandra, that are challenging dynamics. I mean, one of the things Joanne and I love to do is to sit down with couples and talk to them about this very thing. But when you are doing so well in your business, now you didn't give the financial figures here, but let's just say that you're making as much or more than your husband. For your husband to walk away from what he's doing, where he feels that sense of responsibility, he needs to keep that real job. For him to leave that, kind of come over to your side, there, there's a lot of um, pride involved in that sometimes. That's kind of hard to do. Now, we've seen it happen more and more recently where the wife is a primary provider of income or the wife does something that's so successful. We've had some recent Monday mentors on in our Eagles community where the wife has done exactly that. You know, think about Shauna McGreevy who started a cake decorating and that little business idea, which was her hobby, grew so exponentially her husband quit his job you know, as, as an engineer. I mean, he had a great position, but he quit to help her so they would have the time, flexibility, and freedom. They've made it work extremely well. So it can be done. 
But you guys need to be on the same page about that, talk it through, decide what you want your life to look like this next year as we get ready to roll into a new year, and then be in agreement on that. And if that involves him leaving his job, or at the at the very least, he ought to leave the job he has if he's miserable and get another job where he's not miserable. I mean, that's a pretty easy kind of transition. But uh, maybe that he wants to move into something where he has the kind of freedom that you're experiencing as well. And that would be great. Bruce says, my wife and I are working the Dave Ramsey plan, and I'm looking for a way to generate some extra income. I work as a cook at a nursing home, and my shifts vary. I have in the past held a part-time job in addition to my full-time job, but felt like I was just spinning my wheels, not to mention spending way too much time away from my family. I've thought of doing part-time catering, but state health codes prevent you from preparing food out of your own kitchen and serving them to the public. I do, however, have quite a bit of experience working in different areas of the food business. Also, we're new to the area we live in, so I really don't know anyone to network with. I need advice. All right, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add another one in here, get another one, a question that deals with the food industry as well. And then I'll kind of group them together and give you some overall uh, guidelines here. This comes from Virage, Virage, okay. Dan, I recently quit selling cars, started driving trucks again because I cringed at the fact of seeing people go into debt. I belong to the East Indian community, which also happens to be heavily involved in the trucking industry. Being a trucker myself, I've noticed that no one is serving this segment with warm homemade food while they lay over at the local truck stops. Being servant-hearted and determined to be an entrepreneur, I'm considering starting an East Indian mobile food service specifically targeted toward this particular market. Many details need to be worked out, but I can start it out with out-of-pocket, very low capital as weekend venture. Once successful, my wife and I are dreaming of turning it into a nation a nationwide franchise someday. What are your thoughts? Thank you for your encouragement to all of us. All right, now, food industry here. Um, first one there, Bruce is, you know, working as a cook at a nursing home, but has some ideas about how he could do something on his own to make food and serve it. But you need a commercial kitchen. And then the next one here wants to have a ethnically focused, specifically focused food business, having maybe the mobile food truck that could show up at the truck stops. Yeah, there's a lot of details involved in all of those. I mean, how to have a food truck that comes on to a truck stop where they know that a lot of their revenue comes from selling food to the truckers themselves. I mean, a lot of things to be worked out there. Food businesses are tough. Let me just kind of do some high level overview here. Food businesses are tough. And personally, if I made a list of a hundred business ideas that I could get excited about, a restaurant idea would not even make the list. That's how far down it is for me personally. Now, this is me. I admire and had dinner just um, two weeks ago in, well, in Prosper, Texas, north of Dallas, in an Italian restaurant owned by Crazy Eddie. He has 17 locations. Talk to Eddie. He loves what he's doing. I mean, he, he gave shot glasses to everybody in the restaurant, then did a toast and told everybody how much he loved them. I mean, just he's the, the consummate Restaurant owner loves what he's doing, absolutely loves it. All 17 restaurants did great right during the pandemic. None of them have closed. You know, I love seeing people like that. When I want to be Eddie, not a chance in the world. I mean, it's just, it's just not an idea that appeals to me at all. I mean, the margins are extremely small. Good workers are hard to find. Controlling inventory, you have spoilage, you know, every day, all those things are very difficult. However, 
As you know, I always look for an idea that's just a little bit off the beaten path. I mean, as an author, I don't want to do just what every other author's doing and just, you know, eke out a living. No, I want to rock and roll by leveraging a message in my books or books and doing other things that most authors don't do. So what could you do with an affinity for food? I mean, those of you who you know want to do something, how could you be involved in food without all those challenges? Now, a few years ago, I met with a young couple who came in with her father, incidentally, and there was a reason for that, as you'll hear, but they wanted to buy an existing restaurant. I knew the location. It was an, an old house. So every room had its own quaint little ambiance, and they would serve only uh, lunch. lunch. Actually, they were only serving breakfast and lunch. And this, yeah, breakfast and lunch is what they were doing. Anyway, this couple wanted to buy it. It was $243,000 to buy You know, the building, the business, the whole thing. And they didn't have any money, but the father of the gal was willing to take out a mortgage on his house to provide the money. Well, that's a horrible red flag, a horrible way to go into it. But I didn't say that, but I just started asking them questions about this. We looked at the financials. The previous owner, I mean, the current owner, was making you know, $60,000, $70,000 a year. But when you factor in repayment on a significant loan like that, all of a sudden that net profit was going to drop significantly. It was very busy for breakfast and lunch. There's really no way to expand that, serve more people because of the size, the space available. So I said, well, what you need to do is think about adding dinner, and that's going to add significantly to the length of the day. And I said, so, you know, we mapped out what that would look like, and all of a sudden, you know, they see that they need to be working 60 hours a week, and they're saying, wow, you know, we got three young children. That's really not what we wanted. I said, well, I think there are red flags all over this plan. But I said, what I'd like you to do is go back home and come up with 20 other ideas about things you could do in the food industry that would not have the characteristics of what you're looking at here. What is it you could do? I mean, you could cater lunches and go to corporate environments, companies, sales organizations, you know, where you provide lunches. You could come up with just one food item that you supply to the restaurants in your area that wouldn't tie you down to the the particular hours and it wouldn't put you in as a competitor. You'd be a supplier. I mean, there's all kinds of things you could do. So, and, and that's, that is what they did incidentally. And we were able to come up with an idea that I think really fit them well, or where they did not have to, you know, mortgage father-in-law's house and all of that uh, to, to put themselves in business. Let me give you an example here. Uh, I've got a couple examples. In 1996, Stacy Madison was getting her master's in social work. So in order to create some extra income, she started selling pita bread sandwiches out of her food cart. Now, interestingly enough, uh, um, let's see, who was it here? Bruce said that he has to, he knows that health codes don't allow preparing food out of your own kitchen. Stacy was doing that. She was making sandwiches in her own condo. She actually called it a condo cuisine first and was just selling sandwiches to anybody in the condo. And then, you know, somebody said, yeah, you can't do that. You know how that happens. Can't do that. So she got a little food cart called Stacy's Delights in Boston, Massachusetts. And she was using pita bread, which was popular then as it is now due to the popularity of her sandwiches. 
Stacy would over-order pita bread from a local bakery just to make sure she didn't run out. But then what do you do at the end of the day when you've got 20 pitas still available and your, your end of the day, you know, do you just throw those out? Well, she struggled with that. So rather than wasting that extra bread at the end of the day, she started cutting it up into little squares. She'd season them with like cinnamon sugar or Parmesan and then bake the bread until it got crunchy. And then she started using those chips to distribute for free while customers were waiting in line for their sandwiches to be made. Very common kind of practice. But as the popularity of the pita chips grew, Stacy began selling the chips in little bags alongside her sandwiches. Now in the winter, you know, in Boston, it's pretty hard to be outside in a little food truck. And so there were times when she couldn't operate at all. So she decided to transition fully to selling pita chips. That was an operation she could continue all year long. She chose the name Stacy's Pita Chips because she thought a woman's name would be appealing to customers. So from 1997 to 1999, Stacy gave out samples of her chips in local grocery stores. She purchased a custom conveyor belt in 1999. It was a big financial purchase for her to do that allowed her really to explode her growth. She built up her wholesale business and, of course, got in places like uh, Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, places like that. She reached a million dollars in sales in 2001, uh, jumped to $65 million in 2005. In 2005, she sold her business. Now, she, here's just a college gal who started, and she was making these little pita chips, just pita bread, nothing specific about it, no new food, and, and, but she would cut it in squares, season it, she sold that business to PepsiCo under their Frito-Lay division for $243 million. That's the power of having just a, an affinity for food, but instead of just one more person making sandwiches out of a food garden. No, she found one little application and leveraged that to give her a really big windfall. And I mean, that's, you can check her out now. Stacy's Pita Chips, available in a lot of places. I knew a lady actually worked with her in her business. I mean, worked with her, advising her on her business and advised her against what I'm going to tell you here. But she, she was making brownies, pies, dessert items for local restaurants. So she had, you know, four or five faithful women that worked with her in a commercial kitchen. They prepared this stuff. They would go out and she had a lot of local restaurants, even brand name restaurants that would buy from her great business. Well, she let her heart get ahead of her head perhaps, but she decided she wanted to have her own restaurant. Now I looked at the place with her. She was going to buy the building, the whole thing. I advised her totally against it. It made no sense at all. I told her she was going to destroy the business she had. Well, without going into it, I don't want to present it as an I told you so. But unfortunately, uh, she did go ahead because of her ego and open a restaurant. It was horrible from the start. The costs were just overwhelming, and it it put her totally out of business, unfortunately. Totally out. You know, that's you don't want to do. Find your unique place. Find something unusual. I mean, I, I've got a, a book that I just read, John Levy's new book titled You're Invited. Now, this is another kind of interesting slant. Uh, John was 28 years old, didn't have anything really going on. He started to put together just dinners 
because he loved the food industry, but he didn't have the money to open a restaurant. So he started just inviting people for dinner, 12 people at a time. And here's the deal. He would invite people that didn't necessarily know each other. And when you came, you were not allowed to tell people your name. You would just be given an assignment to prepare dinner. So these people would work together to prepare dinner. They would clean up the kitchen, sweep the floor and the whole thing, sit down to dinner. And then, and only then, were you able to tell people your name and who you were. Those dinners have grown exponentially in popularity. I mean, it's there are thousands of people on a waiting list. And he's put together dinners, you know, with athletes and celebrities and politicians, you know, people, you know, well, lots of names that you would know. They're called the influencers dinners. Now, he's made a name for himself because of doing that. And he goes into lots of different towns, put those together, you know, several of them every month. Now has this book out, You're Invited. It's a delightful overview of just the power of connection. It, it's not about food. It's about bringing people together, though, for shared activities like that. But again, that's just another idea. It's, it's an idea that the kind of thing that you can do, it's not just one more of the same. Take your affinity, your initial desire, and then expand on it. Colleen Law is a PhD. She's very active in our Eagles community. She works with people who are trying to finish their dissertations. She has a very, very profitable business in walking people through finishing their dissertation or their master's thesis. That's what she does. But do you know what she also does? She makes Lego houses. She has realtors who contract with her to make a Lego house of a house that a customer is purchasing as a gift to give them when they close the sale. So she loves doing it. It's just, you know, a, a kid hobby growing up that she loves doing. It takes her usually about two hours and she charges $450 for that. And then she includes information about other services that she provides as well. You know, the, the ideas are out there everywhere. Brandon Steiner was a 28-year-old New York sports fan who created a multi-million dollar business in a a really unique way. Usually what's done when sports memorabilia are sold, if it's a jersey or a baseball or a football or a bat, whatever it is, the athlete gets maybe 20% of the sale. Brandon set this up where he would sign an athlete exclusively to work with them, but the athlete would get 100% of all the sales. So if they signed a baseball and he sold it, they get a hundred percent. How could any ball player argue for a better deal than that? But how's the world? How does that work? I mean, it was Brandon an idiot to give the athletes. How, how could he possibly make business work? But here's what he did. What he does is as soon as someone signs orders, a signed baseball, you get a little pop-up. It says, wow, you probably don't want to just have that, you know, in the drawer in your house or sitting on a shelf. Here's a display case for that. So he offers a beautiful plastic display case for only $40. Well, I mean, after somebody spends 150 bucks for a signed baseball, sure, you know, 40 bucks, sure. I want it so I can display it. It makes it look really cool. The display cases cost him 19 cents a piece to produce. That's where he makes his money. Now, when he realized you know, the momentum he was getting there, he started asking people, hey, how would you like to have a little bit of dirt from the actual ball field? 
So if it's from Los Angeles or whatever, he has buckets of dirt from those baseball stadiums, and he sprinkles a little bit in the bottom of the case for an additional $100. Now, he, I mean, you could check him out, Steiner Sports. I mean, last year he grossed more than $40 million with his little idea. Those are the kind of ideas that can make your success. It's not just doing something everybody else is doing. Also in the Eagles community, uh, Estevan is a, a gentleman. He's a husband, father, church planter, but he's also an avid fly fisherman based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. So he has his own line of fishing rods that he, the name he uses is Tenkara, which is a Japanese word and actually means, um, the, the translation means it's falling from heaven. So he wants the lure to appear like it not has been snapped out by a fisherman, which the fish can detect, but rather like it's just something that floated down from heaven. So it's a long rod without a reel. And the the idea is to make it look like it just floated down from heaven. So he, he found that he was selling his rods really, really quickly. But in order to reduce the cost, he needed to buy a bigger quantity. So all he had to do was figure out how to come up with you know, about $40,000 in capital to get a really large order, which dramatically reduced his cost and then came with an inventory. So he's not running out all the time. Again, those are uh, his his site is Rocky MT, Rocky Mountain, Tenkara. But just a great guy. I love to see these things develop. And and those are the kind of, that's how you want to look at your, don't just be one more of the same. I mean, when, when it comes, especially when it comes to food industry, no matter where you live, I mean, you see the number of restaurants being opened. If there's a building that goes vacant, you can be pretty sure, you know, somebody's going to open a restaurant there, give their shot at doing that in a pretty short period of time. I don't know why that's so appealing because it's so competitive, so dependent on the economy, the weather, you know, people's trends, all the, who comes in next door to you, all those kind of things. But there's so many ideas where if you just take a little bit of a, a left turn, you can find an idea that still scratches your itch in that area of interest, but it's not just like everybody else is doing. All right, I'm going to blast through some more here. Brad says, I'm a former TV news photographer, got laid off at the end of May. I don't miss it, but I've been burdened with the thought that I'm not very good at anything. I'm 38 with a wife, three-year-old, and a two-month-old, and I feel pressured to get a job. My passion is writing, but now it's not paying the mortgage. I'm upset with myself for not being business-minded or entrepreneurial. I imagine myself as a leaf blowing in the wind with no direction. I thought of being laid off as giving me a chance to do what I want to do, but I haven't found it. Am I doing something wrong? Can I find the confidence to be a success story I hear about on your podcast? I'm reading your book and listening to your podcast, which I find inspiring. Well, Brad, my advice is go get a job. Now, you may be surprised to hear that. You know, sometimes people think that I think the pinnacle of any success is being your own entrepreneur. No, not not really. No, the pinnacle is being fully engaged in what you're doing, knowing that it is an expression of your passion, you know, where it does give you the life that you want, but that can be done in a lot of different ways. What you're describing does not put you in a good position to be to start something entrepreneurial. You don't make that something that puts you in a position of desperation. 
or it has to work, or you're going to be further in the hole. Um, you know, your wife is upset with you because it's not bringing in the money that you thought it was going to bring from day one. Eh, don't do that. Continue exploring who you are and what motivates you, but just go get a job. No shame in that. It doesn't have to be the perfect job that you're going to have for the next 30 years. But for right now, instead of being at home doing nothing, yeah, I mean, that that tends to be a very negative downward spiral. Don't do that. You can be one of our success stories without being a raving entrepreneur. Get back in the game. We have thousands of stories of people who are ended up well, you know, even like here with the community that Joanne and I live in, you know, for the most part, people are retired. And it surprises me, the large majority of people who were not entrepreneurs. I mean, we're having dinner this week with a gentleman. He was a banker all of his life, you know, did extremely well in that. Got on the street as a, a PhD chemist, you know, people who were in education, you know, people who just managed well with what they did, but they were not entrepreneurs. They were working regular jobs. So it's been enlightening for me as I get to know some of our, some of our new neighbors here. And he says, it is essential to have a high competitive drive to be a successful entrepreneur. I dream of starting my own business, but fear my type B personality will get in the way of my success. For that reason, I get cold feet at the idea of taking the plunge with self-employment. Is my personality something to be overcome or could it possibly be used to my advantage? Would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for all you do. I enjoy listening to your podcast each week, hearing your insights to shake our mentality about working business. All right, Andy, again with you, your personality is not something to be overcome. Your personality is something to be embraced it's to be understood and then validated in finding environments that use that personality with what you're describing. Again, you don't think that you need to take the plunge. If it feels like taking a plunge to self-employment, then my encouragement is maybe that's not a direction for you. Find a position that values what it is you bring to market. You be clear on what it is that you do bring to market and be confident that's a very, very successful, acceptable path for you to take. I'm trying to trying to hurry. Again, the, the, the quantity of questions with the workplace being so volatile is just overwhelming. I just try to grab a few. It's hard to hard to not respond to them all, but we certainly can't do that. Again, appreciate you sending them in. It's an honor to unpack these together. Just shoot those in to me at askdan at 48days.com. And that email address is askdan at 48days.com. Ken says, I'm 60 years old and unemployed. Oh, no, and employed. I'm sorry. I'm 60 and employed, but I feel like I need more money because my mom is in assisted living. If I start a new business, I feel extreme pressure because I cannot afford to fail at all. Well, here's the problem with that, Ken. It wouldn't be called a business unless there was a possibility of failure. I mean, we could give it some other kind of name, but it's not a business. If you're going to start a new business, there's going to be the possibility of failure. Now, I'm not throwing that out there as some looming fear to stop you from doing that, but it, it just is the nature of the beast. There's nothing that you could start that was going to give you any kind of success that doesn't also have 
the possibility of failure. I mean, thus my quotation for today, if failure is not a possibility, then winning is not so sweet. But, but think about it. I mean, if it's um, a running race between two little kids, what makes the idea of winning so thrilling? The fact that <laughs> you're going to win. You know, somebody else is going to see it as failure. I mean, if you're in a bicycle race and you're going to go on a 26-mile ride and it really there's a trophy at the end, there's the possibility that you won't get that. That still makes the process enjoyable, invigorating, healthy, all those fun things. But don't even allow yourself to think that way. If you are looking for something where there's no possibility of failure, you'll never find anything. I mean, if you think you found something, you're wrong. Recognize there is that possibility. But that's what entrepreneurs do, what business people do, is they don't just go into ideas blindly. They don't go into things that are high risk. They do a lot of research. They understand who they are. I mean, that's what I recommend the 48 days process is look inward first. Be so clear about who you are so you know what will fit you. That reduces the potential of risk dramatically. If you find a business idea that really fits you, that is an expression of your passion, your talent, you know how it's going to make money. You may try it before you quit a job that you have now. You know, Spend that 15 hours that we talk about, 15 hours a week doing that. So you build up till you're generating 50% of what your current income is. You can transition. You can reduce the risk any perceived risk at all, you can reduce it dramatically by creating a careful transition plan. So do that, but be assured, yes, there's a possibility of failure. I mean, most people I mean, don't get the failure as a straight line. They get there because they go through some things that didn't work well. A lot of examples in history, and of course, I've certainly had my own experiences in that. The path to where I am today was, is littered with things that did not work well. You know, from the time I was 18 years old and used my the grant money I got to go to Ohio State University to buy those hot cashew machines and found out it was a horrible mistake. The cashews under heat get moldy really quickly if the cashews aren't turned about every 24 hours. And I pulled those things back out of the places that they've been set up by the company I bought the machines from and um, ultimately sold those machines for scrap scrap metal, essentially, and then had to hustle to come up with the money for tuition when it was due. Anyway, I can go on all day long with stories like that. But those are the things that helped me keep learning, helped me get clear and clear about what success would ultimately look like for me. Alex says, Dan, I'm 25 years old, recently accepted a new accounting position, hoping this experience would be different from my last. Turns out I'm insane by definition, since I'm just as miserable as I was before. I often dream of things I would love doing, like being a nature photographer, capturing beautiful scenes of God's creation, or possibly opening a coffee shop, bringing joy to my community through an excellent cup of coffee. Both of these would require capital that my wife and I currently don't have. You see, we are following Dave Ramsey's principles to get out of school debt. And while we earn a good income, I don't think I can do this for three more years. I lack motivation. I've gained 30 pounds since graduating three years ago and I feel I need out for our general well-being. Do you have any advice? Well, I, I do. Certainly, I don't encourage you to do what you're doing for three more years as you describe it, where you're miserable. 
However, this is this is where you know there, there's not an, a one perfect solution. It may be that if if you're deciding that accounting just drives you crazy, but even there, I mean, look at accounting. You can be a traditional accountant just going through books, you're coming up with P and L statements, balance sheets, you know, or you could work with a you know, a really fun nonprofit organization. I mean, there's a nonprofit that I'm involved in where they put high school kids through the process of starting their own business. And then they do, they do individual businesses and then one as a group. Well, it's well-funded. And, you know, if you were working with an organization like that, where you help these beginning entrepreneurs look at their businesses and make good financial processes for them, that could be really exciting. So don't think that you're, uh, that there's nothing involved in your profession that you could do. Get creative about what would an ideal position look like that would still validate your academic background, the track record that you have. And then maybe you do only want to do this for three more years so that you're making a reg- regular, steady, a significant income. But in three years, you'll have your student loan paid off. And then you can plan for what do you want that to look like? What do you want that next transition to look like? So put yourself in the driver's seat. Don't feel trapped. Know that you have options, but then plan forward for what you want your life to look like. Tina says, there's so many podcasts available now that some of them I listen to only once because, but I never miss your podcast. I always get something out of them. So thank you. Uh, One of the reasons why people never achieve their financial independence is lack of knowledge. You write, talking about me, Dan, I write, creative, non-traditional, or innovative skills are not just things you stumble into. You have to learn how to invest, how to deal in real estate, how to evaluate business opportunities, or perhaps how to manage employees. But these are all things that can be learned. All right. So Tina says, can you suggest any books which will explain this subject in a straightforward manner for those who want to start their business now? I've read a lot of books from your list, still have not found a clear answer. Any help would be appreciated. Well, uh, Tina, I I love reading. I mean, there's nothing that helps me move forward like reading great books. I mean, books that are old classics, new books that are coming along. And there's one that's pretty recent by Jay Samet called Future Proofing You. Based on what you're describing here, I would recommend that. Jay took somebody who wanted to prove that you could create a millionaire from somebody who didn't seem to have what it took. He took somebody who was an immigrant out of an unemployment line, took a young guy and helped him create. And really, didn't. I mean, he didn't do the work for him at all, but he just, he helped the guy believe that he could. So he helped the guy have the mindset more than anything. But the young man did go ahead and have a business that generated over a million dollars in the first year. Future proofing you. But I don't have one book. I mean, you can read Good to Great. You can read See You at the Top. You know, a lot of the books that I do recommend. There's so many, there's so many books that are coming out you know, at any given time. I mean, I have a hard time keeping up with good books that address exactly what you're talking about here. So just be confident. I mean, just make it a point to read two books a month, you know, selected from my list or just new stuff that's coming out that you think fits, you know, check it out. I mean, read the reviews of a book on Amazon. If it doesn't look like it's something that appeals to you, you know, just bypass it, but find things that really will work and uh, be confident that this process of reading can help you develop and learn the very things that you described here. Great question. 
Dear Dan, I went out of my job desperately. I've been reading your book 48 Days uh, to find out how to change my thinking and process. My question is, how can I still provide for my family and pay my bills, but get out of my job in the next four to five months? I need out before I sign my next contract in, in the next few months. It's a soul-sucking job that I do not enjoy and don't know what to transition into because my degrees do not allow for a lot of options except the same kind of work. I don't want to just quit, and I can't since I'm the only person working in my family. I feel if I have to return to my job another day, let alone another year, I don't think I'll make it. Please help. Well, again, this, this is a time, um, Barbara, for you to be in the driver's seat. Get clear on what you would like to do. Find the things in your work history that support moving in that direction and then do a job search. I mean, in today's marketplace, as I've mentioned multiple times, every company is looking for people who are clear on the value that they offer. Now, they're not just looking for a body to fill a chair. No. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rotation. Boy, there's, there's just the churn out here is amazing. People go to work and they work for three days and then don't come back. I mean, that happens a lot. So people, companies are not looking for just a body. They want people who accept responsibility for the contributions that they make. Well, we've got a bunch more here, but you know, I'm going to jump to the last one, which I wanted to get to. This is Dan, can my playlist tell me what my passions are? I listen to a lot of podcasts, at least eight hours a week. This comes from Brian. Often I'm asked what I'm listening to. And when I answer the follow-up question is, what kind of podcast? As I answer this question repeatedly, it occurs to me that none of the podcasts I listen to regularly have anything to do with my day job. I'm in an IT group, information technology, at a large company, but the podcasts I listen to are not technical IT topics, but instead focus on leadership, faith, entrepreneurship, and cars, muscle cars, autocross, automotive, small business, etc. I wonder if my list of podcasts is an indication of my passion. Or is it typical to spend outside work time on topics that are not work-related? I think you are really on top of an important principle here, Brian, in that I think your playlist does tell a lot about you and what you're interested in. You know, if you were really, if IT was your life, you'd want to be hanging out with other people who are thinking about that, talking about it, playing games, developing new, you know, new software, whatever. Yeah. I think you can trust the fact that you're not drawn to that. Explore what this could lead to. Now, you know that I've got that sequence that I talk about here a lot. Start with your curiosity, follow your curiosity that leads to proficiency. Then you develop a passion, then purpose. Then you make a promise and profit. I mean, that's a, right straight line path you can walk right through curiosity proficiency passion purpose promise profit that can put a lot of fun in your life and a lot of money in your pocket in doing that but trust this process of having your passions that take you into new areas new kinds of interest that have to do with leadership faith entrepreneurship and cars i love it i love it I have a pretty wide variety of interest in the podcasts that I listen to, but ultimately they all come back to you know, how to find or create work that is fulfilling and meaningful. You know how to put your get gears on your passion, you know, so that you can be doing that and live the life that you want. 
So I'm, I'm pretty clear there's not a lot of distinction between the work that I do, the podcasts that I listen to, the kind of friends I like to hang around, the conversations I want to have. You know, they, they all are pretty blended together. Well, hey, this has been awesome time unpacking these questions. Keep shooting them in to askdan at 48days.com. Remember our upcoming webinar, The Great Resignation. We're going to unpack more of this on how to take advantage of the volatility and changes that are going on to really put yourself in the driver's seat as we head into 2022. For that, just go to 48days.com slash webinar. And as always, thanks for listening, for sending your questions, for being open to growing and being a powerful force, for making the world a better place, for believing without a shadow of a doubt that we can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.